0: Welcome to Raising Our Voices for Health Equity, a limited podcast series sponsored by VODs Advisors. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. In our ongoing effort to shine a light on health equity, today we will discuss cancer and health equity and why so many barriers and gaps still exist today. We have a wonderful guest joining us, Dr. Craig Cole. Dr. Cole is a board-certified hematologist and serves as the Director of Clinical Research in Hematology, Oncology, and Multiple Myeloma at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine at Carmanos Cancer Institute of McLaren, Greater Lansing, and is also on the Cancer Support Community Board of Directors. Indicative of his commitment to equity in cancer care, patient empowerment, and community education, Dr. Cole has won countless awards for his work in teaching, multiple myeloma research and patient advocacy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cole.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm always honored to talk about this subject because it's so important and so dear to my heart. Wonderful.
0: Well, Dr. Cole, to get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and about your work, including your work in multiple myeloma, which I think is a cancer many people have never even heard of.
1: Yeah. So for the past 20 years, I, I have done our research and clinical work in multiple myeloma. And myeloma is a cancer of the plasma cells that live inside the bone marrow of the body. It's the second most common blood cancer um, behind lymphoma. And the unique thing about myeloma is that it's confined to the bone and bone marrow space. So it can cause things like a weakening of the bones, bone pain, high levels of calcium when the myeloma cells dissolve part of the bone, it also causes, because it's in the bone marrow, it can cause anemia, and the protein that myeloma produces can, that we can use to detect the disease can also cause kidney damage. Kind of the unique thing about multiple myeloma is that it is twice as high in people of African descent, so not just African-Americans, but people of African descent around the world, and is twice as common in people of African descent than Caucasians, about three times more than people of Asian descent. And despite a lot of research that has gone behind that disparity, it appears to in part be biologic. And really, we need to figure out why there's such a great disparity with myeloma, and of course, why we have disparities in general.
0: So on that uh, subject of disparities in health equity, Dr. Cole, there are so many statistics that show that people of color fair worse in many areas when facing a cancer diagnosis. For example, I read in a Kaiser Family Foundation report that people of color receive later stage cancer diagnoses for some cancers compared to their white counterparts. To what do we attribute this?
1: You know, I think that what we definitely know is that there are, you know, cancer health disparities and a lot of those differences that we looked at in cancer, that there are significant differences in incidence and prevalence and mortality differences in financial burden of cancer, uh, screening rates and stage of diagnosis. And also it's important to note that there are cancer disparities um, that can be seen when some groups improve with a cancer more than other groups. Cancer health disparities um, are a complex issue because a lot of those statistics that you had mentioned kind of begins at racism, discrimination, and segregation. And the Flexner Report that came out in 1910 was sort of the beginning of segregation of medicine and medical care in this country, which then resulted in structural inequalities and social injustices that persist, you know, have persisted since in the early 1900s to today. And the other interplay of that is social determinants of health. So not only do we have a lot of the social inequities and injustices and racism, but also social uh, determinants of health, such as clinical differences, um, access to to quality care and access to care in general, that there are cultural differences, that uh, health beliefs and health-related attitudes. And then there are behavioral differences differences in diet, tobacco use, obesity, and physical activity. Um, There are psychological uh, determinants of health, stress, um, social stress, micro stress, uh, micro racism, which leads uh, to stress, mental health disease, and isolation. And then there are those biologic determinants of health, you know, things that are hardwired that we really can't affect. Uh, differences in in genetics and tumor microenvironment. And then there are environmental uh, social determinants of health, air quality, um, water quality, adequate housing, transportation, transportation to clinics, a transportation to screening tests, and then socioeconomic inadequacies. You know, and that would include not only income and employment, but also education and, and health literacy. And all those things, the social determinants of health, the structural inadequacies, racism, all lead to cancer disparities. Which um, leads to differences, obvious differences in health outcomes. You know, there are certain groups in the United States that experience cancer disparities and are more likely to face these obstacles. And if, and really, if we can find ways to, to alleviate some of those and change and, and mold medical care so it can be more inclusive, we could hopefully get rid of some of those inadequacies. It's a great foundation for our discussion,
0: Dr. Cole. Um, I also read that the overall rate of cancer screening is lower among certain communities of color. Do we attribute that to some of the things that you've described as well to access to education, to social determinants of health and the barriers that you've described?
1: Yeah, you know, um, people that a lot of those uh, social determinants of health you know, really play in when it comes to cancer screening. Um, You know, people with low incomes, low health literacy, people have to travel long distances uh, to screening sites. you know, people who lack health insurance and uh, transportation to medical facilities. You know, sometimes if you have two jobs, it's, it's difficult to get paid medical leave in order to, to undergo, you know, let's say a, a colonoscopy. They're, and when you have those stressors, Bearing down on you is it's much more difficult to have the recommended cancer screening uh, test um and, and to be treated according to you know the guidelines. I mean, the guidelines that we have for screening tests are wonderful in a utopian society, but can be much more difficult um when you have. Multiple stressors that can impede that, and and if you don't have you know reliable access to healthcare, if you you know don't have you know reliable insurance, or being able to to take leave in order to do these screening tests, it's harder to to get screened, and then you're more likely to be diagnosed with late stage cancer, and 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 then it would even you know those some same stressors that made it difficult to get screening. Will then make it difficult to get uh, treated, and of course, the treatment would be much easier if the if a disease could be diagnosed at an earlier stage. And so, those you know social determinants and those things really play and really amplify when you're talking about cancer screening.
0: Got it. Very helpful, Dr. Cole, I want to pivot to the topic of clinical trials. I know it's a topic about which you are very, uh, very passionate. Um, We also know the same same statistic, statistic, relatively low rates of people of color enrolling in clinical trials. And I know in our country, there is a tragic history there, especially among the black community. Um, Can you give our listeners some of that background and any sense of what communities are doing to try to overcome that mistrust today?
1: Yeah, this is a, a really interesting time in our history because the things that happened in the past 20 years have really come to the forefront and the education of those things. So I was just thinking about this, how my grandmother was a LPN and very early, you know, in my life, we were we were told. She told us about some of the atrocities and injustices that happened to to black people and people of ethnicity, especially when it came to research. In the early 1800s and 1900s, that black people were dug up, and their bodies were used for medical autopsies by medical students, um, and which you know would be a small headline in a newspaper back in the 1900s. But you know the the idea of people digging up black people and then having their bodies disappear, where you had to have guards and people watching over a cemeteries. You know, that message kind of reverberated through uh, generations. And I heard about that. Of course, everyone has heard about Tuskegee and the syphilis experiments. Um, but also there were, were other experimentations that happened where, where Black people and people of other ethnicities and Native Americans were exposed to radiation. And there were caged black prisoner experimentations that also had happened. And again, you know, in over the years and decades and generations, you know, that had been propagated. And so, you know, when I became a doctor as, you know, being a person in research, I remember those things. And the good thing is, is that even with that dark history, every time that a researcher, every time that a clinical researcher wants to engage in research, they have to take a number of tests in order to do clinical trials. And at the forefront of that testing is a clear understanding of what happened today in order to have barriers, in order to keep us from ever doing that again, which is, is so important, I think, for everyone to know that every five years, I have to take a test, um, a series of tests to be a clinical investigator. And those tests, the the all of the things that happened in the past are given over and over again and talked about so that we understand what happened so they'll never happen again. And the safeguards that are now through the FDA and through our local investigational review boards Keep those things from happening again, and now that message of increased safety is going to um, uh, permeate through the community. And so now the message that my daughters get is that yes, these terrible things happened in the past, but here are all the safeguards for for the present.
0: Talk a little bit of, of more about what are communities doing. To increase diversity in trials, how are you talking to patients uh, yourself about trials? I, I imagine uh, it might give a patient comfort to see a, a, an oncologist of color talking about trials, and it may help to bridge that gap a little bit. What what things are you seeing happening in the community?
1: I think you know one big thing is is really really pushing about how diversity in clinical trials are important, that this isn't something that we can, that as communities of color, that we can just let someone else do. And that have been a prevalent, Sort of message is that well someone else can be involved in those clinical trials, and the one thing that we're finding out, especially as we become uh, more savvy and more precise and more targeted in the treatments that we use for cancer, that now race ethnicity matters, and that and that you know black people, white people. And Latinx people aren't just, you know, cookie cutters of each other, but there are significant biologic differences. And now we need to know, are these therapies that we give to people, these therapies that are are incredibly important, incredibly beneficial, are they beneficial for everyone? So for instance, in multiple myeloma trials, when we realize that only 5% of black people were involved in these myeloma trials and 95, and some of the myeloma trials. In fact, on average, it was only 5 or 4.5% of African American, or people of African descent were involved in clinical trials for multiple myeloma where again, know, double the incidence uh, um, in black people, but so few are being involved in clinical trials. How can I trust that these new drugs would actually work for my black patients? The only way that we can be assured of that is for black people and people of ethnicity to to be involved. And then we can be assured because even even today, just at our most recent meeting, there was important information that some of these new drugs that are fantastic don't have equal responses and have different side effects that we need to, to be aware of. So that when I talk to one of, my, one of my Caucasian patients, I say, well, these are the side effects that can happen to you. And then when I talk to one of my black patients, there are a different set of side effects that can happen that they need to be aware of. And so increasing diversity in clinical trials improves the delivery of care for everybody. And more importantly, it helps us find a cure for these cancers that we wouldn't otherwise find if we didn't have diverse populations, because you can't cure a cancer in one group and not the other. Cures for cancer have to be across the board.
0: So I, I think that's a great point, really emphasizing the diversity in clinical trials matters, that it matters for the science and it matters for the effectiveness of the drug in all populations as it's being studied um, in trials. Dr. Cole, I, I know that um, there are many reasons that that, that patients are uh, hesitant to participate in trials. Some of it is that history um, that we've talked about. Certainly, I know sometimes patients think they might get a placebo um, in a clinical trial, which is, of course, not the case. They might think they're going to be treated like a guinea pig in a trial. So maybe we could just take a minute or two to talk about some of those myths and misconceptions and how you address some of that with your patients. You're right there on the front line, and we'd love to, to learn about how you're talking to folks.
1: Yes, that is. As I love that because one of my hobbies is dispelling uh, myths of clinical trials. And, and you hit upon some of the most important ones that, you know, we've done a research that has shown that a lot of those things that you mentioned are primary reasons why people of color aren't involved in clinical trials. One is fear of randomization, that though that if you're on a clinical trial, that you'll be randomized to a, a placebo. And that's not, that's not true. Um, that really when randomized trials are put up two things against each other. So one is the best available care for that particular cancer. So one arm is the best available uh, cancer treatment. The second arm is the best available cancer treatment plus something else. And in order to get to a, what we call a phase three or randomized trial, that extra drug, that extra therapy, that extra procedure has proved itself in prior trials to show its safety and how well it works. And if you're going up against the current standard of care, you've already won some battles. So if you're randomized to either the best available therapy or the best available therapy plus something else, it's a win-win. You're going to get the best care or you're going to get the best care plus something else. If the something else wins, then you have a new standard of care that everybody can enjoy. If it was just the same as the best standard of care, then we continue the standard of care, but you don't lose no matter which arm you're on. The second is, of course, the placebo. And and again, in cancer medicine, it'd be rarely, if ever, give any placebo. The only time a placebo is given is if the standard of care is observation or that the standard of care is that we don't do anything at all. Um, In cancer medicine, that's not very common these days. But and so the likelihood of running a placebo is very, very low. Because, again, you'll get either the best standard, the the current standard of care, or the current standard of care plus something else. When it comes to guinea pig, um, because I've heard that, and I actually heard my mom say that once about being on a clinical trial. Oh, my head swiveled so quick. (laughs) And the thing is, is that in the past, in the past, that was true. So in the past. You know, where did where did we really was experimentation, you know, part of medicine, like you know, in the mid in the 50s and 60s that that's true. In today's world, are people guinea pigs? No. In order to there are multiple tests that a new drug has to go through before it even sees a human being. And a lot of those tests are done in the laboratory. And really, the amount of vetting that a drug gets as it approaches a clinical trial is extreme. It goes through a number of safety checks, scientific checks. These days, computers and artificial intelligence helps us figure out are these drugs safe and do they will they work well? We do extensive pharmacokinetics, and then. When a drug is ready to go in clinical into human clinical trials, then it goes to the FDA, and the FDA then reviews everything to assure its safety before it ever enters a clinical trial. And then when it enters uh, the first clinical trials, it's entered what we call a phase one trial, where people get very small, safe doses of, of, a, of a new drug. And they increase those doses to make sure that it's well tolerated. And there are multiple safeguards. There are lots of people watching to be to assure the safety of a drug. And their review boards, their independent reviewers, the FDA is watching, and of course the doctor that you're working with is watching to assure its safety. And so never, never in the history of that I have ever been involved in medicine are clinical trials safer than they are now because of the safeguards, the training that's required by everyone involved in clinical trials. And so if I was offered a clinical trial today, I would absolutely go on it because, and I would have my family go on it knowing all those safeguards that are currently in place.
0: It's great, great advice. And thank you for helping us dispel some of those myths. Um, as we close our conversation today, Dr. Cole, what advice do you have for listeners who want to be good partners with communities of color and help bridge some of these gaps in health equity. We know that the pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, nonprofits, trade associations, everybody wants to step up and, and, and be a good partner in health equity, but sometimes they feel like they don't have the tools or the right advice to do that. Any tips that you have for folks who want to be a good partner in bridging those gaps?
1: Yeah, that's that's such such an important question. Um, you know, one of one of the... Really important things that has already happened to bridge that gap is that the FDA um, in April of 2022, you know, asks that you know clinical trials that we put forth um, uh, today take into account and be very mindful of enrolling diverse populations in clinical trials. So that's already happened. But now what we need to do is to spread the word of education and health literacy to all the communities that we find. And so you know as a as a physician and as a father and as a husband and as a brother, I talk to everyone I know, about increasing their healthcare literacy, about knowing and being aware and understanding um, what it—the uh, importance of knowing your own body, knowing yourself, and having a really good communication with your with your providers—and and, and it, it's okay. To find a provi- find the best provider for you that you're not married to a particular doctor you 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 know just like you don't marry the first person you see you know you, you you find the right person so you can gain trust and build trust and um and build communication and so I really talk to my family and I talk to my friends about improving health education and to work at alleviating some of those uh, barriers. Also, I think it's important for students and young people because we need more, um, you know, again, if you go back to the Flexner report, which I know I've mentioned earlier that that said that really, you know, physicians in America should be Caucasian males, that now we need to move beyond that and to, to have more women involved in medicine and medical care and more people of color. By adding diversity in cancer research and the care workforce, then we start to alleviate a lot of those barriers. We start to have people that are aware of those social determinants of health. we can actually change those things to then move forward instead of backwards. And so I think that that's a few things that we can do to really push things forward. But I think awareness, awareness of that these exist and and trying to alleviate that through education is one of the primary ways that we can bridge that gap.
0: Wonderful. Great advice today. Great tips. I I I I love the fact that you your one of your hobbies is to dispel myths about clinical trials. I just I love that about you. You better be careful you might start getting uninvited to dinner parties, Dr. Cole. <laughs>
1: People like talking about that at dinner.
0: I love it. I think it's fantastic. I do the same. So I'm glad to hear that that that's a topic that's front and center. Dr. Cole, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This is Raising Our Voices for Health Equity. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Please join us for our next episode as we continue to shine a light on these important issues.